All right. Well, uh, good morning, guys. It's good to see you here. Um, if you're new, welcome. Uh, and if you're not, it's always good to see your faces again. Uh, one thing you, you missed with the, the 8 o'clock service was Stan actually had the cat up here during announcements. I don't know why he thought that was a good idea. I specifically told him, like, whatever you do, like, just don't take it up there for announcements. And it's on his back and, like, crawling behind announcements. And anyway, so you're, you're blessed for being at this service so that you didn't have to kind of watch that. But anyway, um, this morning we're going to be in Acts 17, like Stan said. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to share a little bit of just recent history uh, in, in my world. And so about four years ago, Stan, myself, and a group of about 30 individuals said, what if if this church that we're a part of in Iowa began a church somewhere else. And so, talked through it, Stan uh, built a team, and four years ago, moved down here to help uh, just witness God uh, do a work through Anthem Church and through Salt Company. And that, that group of 30 has just grown and grown year after year, and it's been a beautiful thing to just witness God doing a work. But the year before I moved down here. I was actually teaching uh, full-time at a Christian school, was a history teacher, taught government and economics as well, which I had like zero accreditation really in that stuff, so that did not go well. Like having high school seniors that you're trying to teach government and economics to, and then they have questions, and I have no idea how to answer them. Like that was not a, a great part, but what I did love was teaching history, and it was in history class where, where I stumbled on this thing where, where I looked at transportation through planes, trains, and automobiles from the 1800s and into the 1900s. And I noticed just how much the world turned upside down because of those things. And so just bear, bear with me as we kind of recourse history a little bit. But imagine we're early 1800s and we're trying to move some grain or something from Texas to, uh, I don't know, we'll say Missouri. How is that going to be done at that point? Horse, cart, Oxen, maybe, you know, a, a steamship is in the making, but that can't go everywhere. But what shows up on the scene? A train. And what does a train do? It begins to change economics and industry forever. It begins to turn the world of business upside down because you can, you can move steel, you can move grain, you can move things all throughout the United States. And then we look at the early 1900s and we see cars begin to do the same thing for people. To where it's like, you go from, oh man, got to take the hour-long walk to school, to, hey, what I used to do in hours can now be done in minutes. And then we look at planes. There's that same sort of thing, where all of a sudden the, the world is becoming a more globalized place. You got dreams to be in another country, you can be there in hours. And I think it's really fun to just hit pause and notice how one thing can turn the world upside down so quickly. And so that's why looking at the book of Acts over the, the course of the last few months as a church has been sweet because we see the way in which Jesus turned the world upside down. He, he lives his life on earth. This God-man Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, has disciples and followers, and as he goes to be with the Father, he sends his people out on mission to begin the ongoing work of the early church. And we get excited about that at Anthem because here we are 2,000 years later, just a product of that. A product of world changing that happened then that continues on into world changing now. 
And if you're in here and you're like, man, I've experienced a lot of just change in my life over the, the last month or, or over the years, that's a work of God in your life that then gives more evidence to the fact that, that one thing can absolutely turn the world upside down for the better. And that's through relationship with the Lord, through life in the Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Acts 17 with one another to see how life in the Spirit turns the world upside down. In a world where there's brokenness, in a society where there are hard things, in a time when we're a little freaked out about maybe an upcoming election, or we're unsure about just the implications of, you know, uh, the, the pandemic this next year. What else might it ruin? We have all these fears, these insecurities, these worries. We're going to be able to see through Acts 17 that the church can be a place where the world can still be turned upside down for the better through the work of the Spirit. And so I'm going to pray for us and we'll uh, enter into Acts together. Lord, we just... We praise you. We thank you uh, for your word, that it guides us, that your spirit uh, has moved, Lord, throughout all of history. Your spirit has moved, it's worked in hearts, it's transformed lives, and God, it hasn't stopped. And we thank you, we, we note and appreciate the work that you're doing here, God, and we ask that it would continue so that more and more lives can be moved to, to looking like a city on a hill in this community. And so, Lord, I just pray over these next 25 minutes that as we walk through this text, we'll be able to find hope and just understanding from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we jump into Acts 17, um, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Acts 7 uh, looking at the, this man named Saul at that time who would later become Paul. And so as we're talking about what life in the Spirit looks like as it turns the world upside down, we're going to look through the case study of the Apostle Paul and see how life change happened in him so that the world around him would turn upside down. And so turn with me to Acts 7, if you would, and we're going to be jumping into verse 54 where we see this man named Stephen, a disciple of Jesus, not one of the twelve, but a follower of Jesus, who's experienced just this deep transformation of God. But as he's living out his faith, as he's bringing other people into that, what happens is he, he interacts and meets this man named Saul who ends up orchestrating the persecution and death of Stephen. And so let's jump in and see what this case study of Paul, who he was before he followed Jesus. So starting in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That's Stephen. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. A nice reference from Daniel there. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast Stephen out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, which was, which was representing that, that Saul was the guy who orchestrated this. Them laying down their garments before Saul was showing that Saul was the person who was overseeing this persecution. And we read on into verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees... 
he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul, who would later become Paul, he approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul in this storyline, he is not helping more people know, love, and obey Jesus. He's not in the trenches living out this Christian faith. He's actually been a man who's grown up in this religious system. This, this man of Jewish faith who, who was leading out in the synagogues. And because they feared the implications of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, rather than promoting people to follow after him, what do we see Paul doing or Saul doing, but gathering people, gathering radicals that would stifle and stop the movement of Jesus. And so he's living this, this life where he's trying to defend his own mission and his own plan. He's on the self-piloted track with a group of men and women around him trying to stifle and stop the Christian faith. And others' lives are being taken because of it. But then what we can do, we can look at Acts 9. And even though that's been the story of Saul up until this point, we can see the transforming work of God. Even in someone such as he. And so let's see what happens in the life of Saul becoming Paul. In chapter 9, verse 10, in this interaction with Ananias, a follower of Jesus, We'll see just what happens with Mr. Saul's life and future from here. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, and God having different plans at times for us, he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias, in, in obedience, he departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The first element of a spirit-filled life that's going to lead to the world turning upside down. The first element is transformation, gospel transformation. 
And what I mean by gospel transformation is, is you're going from this road of a self-piloted life where you're about your own plan, your own agenda, your own thing, and there's an intersection point where God intercedes in your life, says, yeah, uh, you will be my child. And, and Saul becoming Paul in a moment of surrender follows after the Lord. And from that moment on, he's no longer living for his agenda and his thing, but there's this transformation point that then puts him on a new path because he is no longer a child of darkness, but a child of God. And so that's exactly what happens to Paul in this interaction. He is giving the keys over to the Lord to drive his life rather than to be about his own thing. He submits to God's call in his life to confess his sins and to follow after the Lord. And so he experiences gospel transformation. And from, from that point on, he goes from being man-centered, all about me, all about me, all about me, to being God-centered. And for the next 32 years of his life, he lives on earth sending that good news message forward. And he has this new identity and this new name, and it has impact on his life for the rest of his years. And I've seen that sort of world turning for the better here in this place over the last four years. We have witnessed God bringing more and more people to this point of salvation where they go from living for their own thing and their own agenda to a point of salvation where it's like, Lord, will you transform my life? I need you. I cannot do it on my own. And we have seen person after person make that commitment and begin a new and different journey. And what does it do but bring life and transformation? And it's a beautiful thing. Even I was at uh, Panera a couple days ago. Got there at like 6.30. I was like, oh, I'll probably be one of the first people here. And then I pull up and Andrew Zinda and Jeremy Richmond are there. And I'm like, oh, like, good to see those guys. And then I thought, you know, those guys three, four years ago, they were not following after Jesus. They were going on their own plan, own agenda sort of life, self-piloting life. And then they have this moment where God transforms them. And since then, the trajectory of their life has been an amazing thing to witness. Confessing sin, moving on from old ways, saying yes to going overseas, playing a part in sharing the gospel with people in Asia. And that real sort of transformation that we've witnessed here is the same sort of transformation that was going on in the life of Paul here. And no matter what Paul's story was, there was the opportunity to be transformed by the Spirit of God. And that gives us hope too, right? Because we have things, we have stories that have defined us. But we have the, the opportunity to be made right before God through a relationship with Jesus and to be walking in a different path. And that's what had happened to Paul. And so the first element of a spirit-filled life is gospel transformation. Let's uh, begin reading in Acts 17 uh, with one another. We'll read the first three verses as we see kind of what the next stage, the next step for a spirit-filled individual is. So let's read the first three verses together. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, Paul, who now has this transformed life, he went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is 
the Messiah. And so the second element of a spirit-filled life that we see here, it's transformation, and then that sends one into proclamation. So where there is a life transformation that's happening, there then is this movement and proclamation of what's happened. And so we see Paul, he's traveling throughout the ancient world. He's going to Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, and he's interacting in these Jewish synagogues with people who he used to befriend and people that he used to be like-minded with. And so what's happening here, he's taking the, the, the Old Testament scriptures that, that the, the Jewish people knew in those synagogues, and he's saying, look, like we can look at God's word, we can look at the Old Testament and see where it points to this man, Jesus, coming. We can see where it speaks to this Messiah that is going to come and bring transformation in people's lives and turn the world upside down. We can look at the scriptures and see that. And so Paul was on mission to communicate that message to those in the synagogues. And it, verse 2, had become his custom. Like, that's what his life was about now. And so the reality is that, that Paul goes from being man-centered to God-centered, and he starts talking. Because there's this work of God in him, he begins to communicate where that working came from. And it led to a lifestyle of proclamation. It's what sends him on, on four different journeys throughout the course of his 32 years as a believer. It sends him on four different journeys, 10,000 miles worth of travel, not by plane, by foot, by ship, endures shipwreck, flogging, imprisonment. Why? Because there's this transformation that's happened in his life. It's sent him on a new path, and he's wanting to proclaim that to people outside of himself. He's wanting to bring other people in on that. Transformation leads to proclamation, and the world begins to turn upside down. And that's the role of the Spirit in a believer's life, to push us onward and outward to take the gospel forward. And yeah, I, I hate bringing up sports in a, in a time where sports are kind of hardly allowed, but I feel like we see this in, in the sports world too. Like, we, we see that athlete who maybe had kind of a, a ho-hum sort of performance throughout the course of years. And then all of a sudden, there's this big change that happens. It's like, wait, what happened? Like, Mr. Athlete, Mrs. Athlete, what happened in your world? And quickly, what do they do? They start to say where that transformation came from. They say, well, there was this coach that pulled me aside and started to help me see how to be a better athlete in this way. Or maybe there was uh, just a change in my mindset. There was something that happened. Or, or there's a new workout. And they begin to just share where that transformation came from. Or if you're like, eh, I don't really do the sports thing. I don't get that analogy. Like, let's, let's talk about kids. Like, infants turn into toddlers. And, and as toddlers are living their days, you know, right? For a while, it's all fours on the floor. But then what? They begin to, like, learn how to walk. And then because that transformation's happened, they just walk all the more, and they learn how to do it faster, and they start running. They start to proclaim this newness in their life. Even with their words, they start to learn one word, and then it's like, man, like, I'm starting to grasp like, how to communicate with people in a, in a whole new way. Like, I don't have to just use hand signals anymore. Like, I can use words. And what begins is just this little thing grows and grows to where this new identity, this new part of their lifestyle begins to affect everything, and they talk about it. And that's what Paul 
experienced. He experienced a, a transformation of his soul that then sent him on to this mission to talk to people about where that change came from. Matt was sharing with me about a birthday party that I think was at his house uh, a few weeks or months back. And uh, birthday parties going on is for, uh, I think, his daughter uh, celebrating her birthday. And there's a group of other girls there, and they're all just enjoying the time. And lo and behold, Danica Hayek, Stan's daughter, all of a sudden starts sharing the gospel with one of the little girls there. And she's maybe 10. She's almost 10, I think, Danica. She loves riding horses. She loves living life as a 10-year-old out in the country. But she also has experienced transformation in her heart because of the work of God. And even her at 10, what she understands is, if there's this change that's happened, I should probably begin to communicate that. There's college students that have the same sort of thing happening where it's like, man, God had this profound work in my life, stopped going that way, started going this way. And now they're starting to communicate that in their workplace, in the classroom. Even thinking of uh, uh, Mike Cox, one of the, the older individuals in our church, who has a great heart and has just been a faithful citizen of Columbia for years. I think he's worked at the same local business for 50 years. And he's a guy who, as he's working on appliances in people's homes, He's sharing just the work of God in his life. Talking to people about what's going on in their world. Being a listener, but also being someone who's not afraid to share. And so he's proclaiming the transforming work of God in his life. And, and by God's grace, you guys have, many of you have experienced that change as well. And you've begun to share and talk about that. And that's, like I said before, the, the work of a believer. That, that we should allow the Holy Spirit to send us into places where we're communicating truth. And so transformation leads to proclamation. Um, let's continue on into verse four with one another. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Sounds like what Saul used to do seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now Paul's moving from, from one location to Berea, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The next element in a spirit-filled life is gospel growth. There's this rich depth that we can see in the text with Paul, with these devout Greeks who had become believers, with these leading women in the community. 
there is this gospel growth that happens. And we can see that, the evidence of that, through a couple of different things. Like one of those things is their perseverance, right? There are city officials against them, people in the Jewish synagogues that are against them, citizens of the city that are against them. But what are they doing? They're sticking to their roots. They're standing their ground and showing like, yeah, the, the, the work of God in us is so strong and so steady that we will persevere through anything. And they have this willingness to take a bullet, right? They're willing to put their lives on the line and that's the sign of gospel growth. The movement of God within them. We can also look at the text and see in verse 6 where it talks about how God was using these men to turn the world upside down. And this is something that, like, it wasn't even people of God that were making that statement. These were polytheists, atheists, agnostics, other people who were just speaking that over them. They're like, these men, these women that are, are, are turning the world upside down, they're referencing from the outside, hey, there's something different in these people. And what is that doing but showing gospel growth? So there's this perseverance, this allowance of letting God use them. Then we can also look at uh, the, the church in Berea. The people within the synagogue there, we, we can see how as they're listening to Paul, they're also opening up Scripture. And they're not, they're not letting some willy-nilly blog post define what they're about or, or send them on, on some certain life journey. Some self-help thing. They're not just listening to, you know, one side comment from Paul or Silas or Timothy. They're taking everything back to Scripture and saying, you know what? This is going to be the guide in my life. This is going to be the thing that informs what happens. And that is another sign of gospel growth. To have the Word of God be the determining factor in our hearts rather than our feelings, rather than nice thoughts from mom 15 years ago. What if God's Word was the guide. And that's what these believers were learning to rely on. And so simply put, Paul and the the Greeks and these women that were experiencing gospel growth, they did so in a culture that was vocal and violent towards them. And how so? How were they enduring that? Because they allowed the Spirit to shape, to sharpen, and to cultivate growth in their life. And it's almost as if They're running with this level of confidence and maturity because they've figured out how to fly and no one else knows. They have figured out the secret. They have figured out the way to get from point A to point B in just a moment. Whereas everyone else in the world that's not grounded in the Lord, they are struggling and they are walking through life and trying to figure it out. There's the people of God, the the true followers who've experienced transformation and proclamation and now growth. And nothing is stopping them. And the gospel keeps going forward because there's that depth, that resilience, that movement, that confidence in the Lord. And the reality is everyone who says, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, ought to be experiencing that sort of stability. And where there's not that stability, that's where one must ask, it's like, was there transformation there? Because gospel transformation is a whole lifelong story. 
for a believer, it doesn't matter if, if we're 10. It doesn't matter if we're 45. It doesn't matter if we're 65. There is a call in Scripture to be working out our faith all our days long. So if you're in a spot where, where there might be some, some boredom with faith, or there's just not a lot of growth happening, there's not a proclamation of your faith, has there been a seed planted there in your heart? Uh, Jesus uses a lot of farm analogies because they're simple. Where there's fertile soil, where there's a seed, where it gets watered, something will sprout and grow. And that sort of growth is what was happening for Paul and those around him in this text. The, the final element that we're going to see in the Spirit-filled life is gospel intentionality. We're going to see uh, in verses 16 to, to 25 or 26 just how influential the Spirit of God within them was. And so let's read from verse 16 on. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues, yet again, with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, which was like this outdoor arena where they commonly shared things like this, he, he said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So we see Paul intentionally using his time. We see that he shows up in Athens a little early, and he doesn't just show up in Athens before uh, Timothy and Silas get there and, and veg out. He doesn't just check out. He doesn't just kind of, you know, spend all his time on himself and, and kind of just, you know, do his own thing. What does he do? He starts noticing the city that's, that he's in. He's gone from one city to the next. He's in a new place in Athens. And he's wanting to, to make mental notes of what's going on in this city. Who are these people? What are they about? What's the thing that they are grasping for? And so what does he do? He, he notes these are religious people. And so he has this intentionality that he's, he's using with his time. But he also has eyes for the community around him. And he's, he's figuring out, okay, like, I, I want to be able to communicate these truths, but I want to be able to do it in such a way that people hear it and listen. I want to be able to find common ground 
with this group of people so that they might be able to hear of this transforming work of God that can happen in their world. And so we see in the text, there's this this word like perceive and observe coming up a a couple times, and he's doing that so he can communicate that message. And so one thing he notes is that, all right, you guys are very religious. I've noted that. You have a lot of different idols. But then you have this one that says to the unknown God. He's like, guess what? I know him. I have experienced life transformation from the unknown God. And it's actually the God that has created all things and he's over all the earth. And the gods that you guys are serving, that that, that you're looking at, looking to, grasping for, to give you life and to give you hope, those gods were made with human hands. I have the secret, in a way, is what he's communicating. Saying, I know the unknown God. And so he was able to kind of read the room, relate to people, find common ground, speak their language so that they might hear him. And what Paul was doing was really just following through with God's design. God has designed our our mind and our hearts in such a way that we can observe things around us. We, We can be strategic. We can be tactful. We can grow an awareness of things. And that's what Paul's doing. He's living out this beautiful design of God to be a creature who lives with intent. Life's not just happening for him. He's not just, well, maybe I'll pray and we'll see what God does. He's seeking the Lord for sure in prayer, but he's also taking steps with intention so that he might be able to be influencing people, helping them see the Lord, to know, love, and obey Jesus more and more. And so Paul is living with just incredibly clear intention. And that's the sort of thing that that we want people within our church to feel the freedom to do as well. Like there's nothing wrong with prioritizing things. There's nothing wrong with setting schedules, living with a, a specific intent as we interact with people around us, around your dinner table, in the living room, wherever you're at, workplace, school, we can live with intent. And that's exactly what we see Paul doing. And what does God do but bless his obedience in that? When we look at verse 34, we can see what's the outcome. Read verse 34. It says, Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Oropagate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul is living with gospel intentionality. And what is it doing but turning the world upside down around him? Life is being found. New life is happening. People are gaining this new identity in the Lord. And that gospel just keeps spreading through his faithful intent. And gospel intentionality, it's something that I am trying to work on in my life right now. Like, as church staff, like, we want to, to live our lives in such a way where we can help love the, the people of Columbia, help reach the students at Mizzou. And so in staff meetings, in one-on-one interactions between staff, we are trying to, to do what, what we know how from Scripture and from the, the life and the mind that God has given us to know how to lead the church best. And so growing in that, it's hard. Sometimes I'm a slow learner. 
But by God's grace, there has been intentionality with that, and God is blessing it. And as we talk about intentionality, too, it makes me think about my brother, Nate. He's a guy who, uh, for a lot of years, didn't really live out the, the Christian mission, didn't understand the depth of the gospel. And so a lot of times it kind of looked like he was just living his own self-piloted life and no urgency for the gospel going forward. But he had a moment in his life where the Lord began to do a deep work. And what that did was pull him away from this sort of lifestyle and send him on a journey where he wanted to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And so he began to do that around college students when he was at college. And then he felt this tug, this pull to go to Zambia and did that for, I think, over a year First, just himself, and then with his wife and little girl. And now I got a text from him the other day, and he said, hey, we just bought tickets, and they're going back. And it's not just him and his wife, it's, it's four little ones. And why are they doing that? Because they believe that the message ought to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And they've, they've been faithful where they're at, they're living with intent where they're at, but now there is this call and this push to go. And because they love the Lord, they are, they are in step with the Spirit. And the, the world turning upside down within their lives is now being taken abroad again. And that's the sort of transformation and change that's happened in the life of Paul. And that's the sort of thing that we can experience as well. And some of you in here, you might be like, oh, good to know. Like, thanks for the chart. Google Docs, man. It's incredible. But you might be in here and you're like, I, I see that. I appreciate that. But what if I'm not there? What if I'm just kind of lost and wondering and some of this just doesn't make sense? It doesn't add up. I've tried living for different things and that's not really working out. And I'm here because I want to grow and learn and maybe be more like God or understand God. Let's look at Acts 17, starting in verse 25 again. This is the message for you this morning, I would say. The end of verse 25, it says, He himself, the Lord, he gives to all mankind, what does he give? Life and breath and everything. Like we can't, ref we, we can't refute that. Like we came from somewhere. We're existing, we're breathing, we're continuing to live for a reason. Like that had some cause that created that. There was like a first cause to the first thing in life, right? To life, to breath, to living. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. And so no matter where you're at, we see in this text, even if you're feeling the most, just farther away from God than ever, we can look at this text and see he is not far from you. And so even if you were really messing things up this last week and you got a lot of guilt and shame in your heart and you're like, man, I really don't, I don't want to go to church because it, it, I'm just thinking about my lifestyle and I don't know, they might not accept me. And ah, oh, man, there's just like this mental wrestle that's going on. We see in the text, God is not far from you. And for you, the step this morning may be transformation. It's saying, you know what? I'm not going to go for my 
own agenda, my own journey anymore. I'm going to have this point of salvation where I just confess my sins before God and say, man, I do need you, Lord. And it's giving him the keys to your life, and then everything becomes different. Transformation happens, and what do you do? But you talk about it. And you talk about it, and as you're doing that, what happens? You grow. And as you grow, what happens from there? But you live your life with such intent that other people may hear the good news of Jesus. If you want to put that graphic up there, the, what, what happens then from there is it just keeps going on all your days long. So as you're living with intentionality, you're going to come into more circumstances where it's like, wow, you know what? I should proclaim my faith, this God story, to someone else. And the cycle is to go on in the life of a believer. We're transformed by Jesus, and then we're sent in the cycle of proclamation, growth, and intentionality. And the beautiful thing with that is as we're doing that, more people become transformed. And then their journey begins. And so we look at the text. We see that's going on with Paul. And that's what can be your story as well. And if you're lost and wandering, hope can be found in Jesus. Maybe you're in a spot where it's like, ah, you know, I had that transformation happen when I was six or grew up in that family. So I, I kind of just get it. To you, I would ask, does your life display that? If we were to take a poll of the five people who know you best, would they say, oh man, like, like they're always talking about their faith. They're, they're always, you know, just talking about how God is growing them. You know, they're, they're 70, but they're so humble and letting God continue to shape their perspective and their understanding. There's growth. Are they saying that? Or they're living with intention. Like we're given 24 hours a day, right? Most of us sleep around eight. And that means we get to exist awake for, you know, 16 hours. As we're awake, are we living with intent? Are you in that spot? Are you living your life with intention? Because even if you're, you're claiming, yeah, transformation happened, but there hasn't been movement since then, was there a transformation? It seems that God's word says that for a life of a believer, spirit-filled living produces movement. And if there's not movement in your life, if your car's kind of just stuck in one place, there's no gas in it, you're not going anywhere. So maybe the, the step for you, if that's you in here this morning, it's asking yourself, like, man, was that commitment to the Lord genuine? Or maybe you, you're sure that it is, but maybe it's just being willing to let God shape you to become deeper in his word to become more vocal in sharing his good news, to become more thoughtful with how you're living. And maybe that's where you're at, and that's a beautiful thing. Like, that process is all lifelong. Proverbs 4 talks about what it looks like to be on the, the path of the righteous. And it says that those who are righteous shine brighter and brighter and brighter until full day. So if you're in that spot, and people are seeing the work of God in your life, encouragement to you is keep after it. That's a beautiful thing, and praise God that he's doing that work in you. So this morning, there's a few different spots we can be in. I'd love for you to think through which spot am I in, and God, would you help me to understand what my action step from this moment needs to be? Let me pray for us. God, we just praise you for your word. We thank you uh, that it can guide us. Lord, I pray that you'd give uh, each person in this room, give me humility right now. 
Lord, would we let you in our heart with a microscope and just look at our selfish tendencies, look at our blindness to different things. Lord, would you teach us something to take forward, God? The Spirit of God is a transforming thing, Lord, and we, and we see that, and Lord, we ask that that would continue here for the individual, for the church as a whole. Would we be Spirit-filled people who experience just forward movement all our days long, God? Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.